You're about to hear a rebroadcast of The Colin McEnroe Show. It originally aired November 13th, 2013 on Connecticut Public Radio. Good morning, Marvel Boy. How you feeling today? <laughs> Big race today. It's a 350. Very tough field. So I'm here to help you get ready. All right, open your beak, and I'm just going to squirt a little bit of this juice under your tongue. This, it's, you know, it's juice. You know, all the top pigeons are using it, so open wide, Marble Boy. I got to make sure it all gets in there. What's in it? Well, you know, a little Clomid, uh, amphetamine, some anabolic steroid. It ain't Hawaiian punch, if that's what you're asking. All right, let's see that little pigeon tongue. You got to take it. You're racing against Belgian pigeons. Belgian pigeons. They're like the mayor of Toronto with wings. They got so much drugs in their system. Now, look, I've put a lot of money into you. You've had the best pigeon food there is. And let's just say that I didn't make you take a vow of celibacy when it comes to the lady pigeons. Now you owe me. Take the juice. Take it. Take it. Take it. You better take it. Damn it. Okay, have it your way. Spend the rest of your life crapping all over park benches and sitting on top of a statue of Alexander Hamilton. And you, you'll just be nothing. You'll be just another pigeon. And you know what? You could have been somebody. You could have been right up there with the great ones. Toomba, Eurostar, the Duke. Instead, you'll be waddling around Washington Square asking little old ladies to feed you. That's more like it. Now, here's a squirt for you. And one for me. Ugh. Because Mama need a little helper, too, right? Okay, let's try a little practice flight. Okay, I might have the dosage off a little bit. Meanwhile, here's everything we can tell you about pigeons in one hour. And now he says they're delicious with just a little bit of truffle oil. Colin McEnroe. I would like to report with some chagrin and embarrassment that I played the pigeon in that sketch, that I actually went into a studio today and made pigeon noises uh, until Kyone Wolf was was satisfied. And, and I would also like to say that although we are going to address the whole subject of pigeon doping today, which is an actual real problem in the world of pigeon racing, there are a number of pigeon stereotypes in that sketch that are semi-unfair, and we will address those as well. Uh, joining us right now, well, well, I'll tell you who's to come, first of all. A little bit later, we'll be talking to Yoni Al. Applebaum, a social and cultural historian and a doctoral candidate at Brandeis University specializing in the military uses of pigeons, especially an odd sort of triadic configuration during World War I of pigeons, the U.S. military, and the Boston Red Sox. Uh, but uh, as as either Andrew or I could tell you, I mean, the pigeons have had many military uses over the years and well past World War I into World War II. Also, a little bit later, because I've always been fascinated by one of the more quotable Gertrude Stein lines is Pigeons on the, on the Grass, Alas, which, first of all, may have been sung for the first time right here in Hartford. So Wanda Korn, a Robert and Ruth Halperin Professor Emerita of the Department of Art and Art History at Stanford University, uh, is going to explain to us as best she can, as best anybody can explain Gertrude Stein to anybody, why Pigeons on the Grass would inspire alas. But we're going to begin with Andrew Blackman. Uh, he's the managing editor of Orion Magazine. But more importantly for our purposes, he's an award-winning journalist and the author of Pigeons, 
the 2000 book that I read, Pigeons, the Fascinating Saga of the World's Most Revered and Reviled Bird. So when we decided we were going to do a show about pigeons, Andrew was our go-to guy. So, um, And we'll be telling you a lot of things about pigeons. And if you have questions about them or comments about them, tweet us, which I suppose is sort of appropriate uh, with pigeons, although tweet is not really exactly what they do. But you may tweet us at WNPR column, and we will do our best with what you tweet. Andrew Blackman, uh, you know, there was some mention made in in this introduction of uh, pigeons crapping on park benches and sitting on top of Alexander Hamilton, all of which actually does go on. But one of the the canards, to use a duck term, against pigeons that I, I realized from reading your book is pigeons don't really poop more than other birds, right? They just It's more a question of where they poop. <laughs> That's exactly right, Colin. Um, basically, pigeons are urban creatures. They like to be where we are. I mean, uh, are, there are creatures that like to be around humans. So when they poop, we, we, we happen to notice it. They tend to like, uh, you don't see them in trees so much. You see them, uh, I mean, they come from, from cliffs, so, the, in fact, they're called rock pigeons or rock doves. And uh, so they like they like ledges. It's where they naturally feel comfortable and statues, stone statues. And that's where they poo. They poo. So, And one of the things, one of the chapters of your book delves in in considerable detail to the, the whole the bird control practices, various things that have been used to get rid of pigeons. Because there's a lot of times when people don't want pigeons around because they make big messes and because they're, you know, they are associated with certain diseases and there may be certain things in their poop, even though their poop was prized by the Egyptians as a, a great source of fertilizer. But really, the most sensible thing that I think you found in your book was a scientist who said, really, it's just all about feeding them. If you don't feed them, everything changes. Yeah, I mean the trick is this. First of all, don't go out and berate someone for feeding them. Um, there are the real problem are there's a few essentially closet obsessive feeders of pigeons who will go out often before even daybreak to put food out. Um, sometimes bags of mm. food, bags and bags of it. Every city has them. Um, you know, slightly mentally ill or at least compulsive. Your average pigeon feeder, though, is I mean I would not want to take that away from somebody, which is either a young child or someone uh, who has a day off or is out of work or someone who's retired just sitting on a bench and feeding pigeons. The trick is this, though, is don't overfeed them. And better than to feed them bread, which is the easiest thing, you know, just a little bag, like a little little handful of bird seed is the way to go. Because um, the reason why the, the poo ends up feeling like concrete and, and, and a pain in the neck and like it's going to last is, and doesn't wash away is because that's just how they digest white bread simple carbs. If you give them bird feed, which is basically protein, uh, it just washes away like it would in the wild. We should probably at least try to define what is a pigeon. People often kind of use the terms pigeon and dove interchangeably. I know there's pigeons were of great fascination to, to Darwin. It's actually, I think, the first chapter of Origin of the Species is about uh, about what a pigeon is or about pigeons in general. Um, so, and, yep. and I know even since your book came out, Andrew, there's been more work done on sequencing the pigeon genome and answering some of the th- questions that were near certainties at the time of, writing, of, of the writing of your book. but So explain, you know, what are we talking about when we say pigeon? Well, first of all, uh, pigeon and dove are essentially the same thing. Every pigeon is a dove, not every dove is a pigeon, because a pigeon is a subspecies of dove or a type of, of, uh, of dove. Um, pigeon's just French for dove. I mean, you can blame that on William the Conqueror. Um, English is peppered with French synonyms. So it's essentially the same word, just like Paloma is Spanish for pigeon, which is what Picasso named his daughter. Yeah, so um, Picasso will weave in and out of our conversation today in odd ways about pigeons. Well, that's always nice. I always like to talk about Picasso if possible. Um, 
So uh, pigeons go back. I mean, we're about one hundred thirty thousand years as a as a species of you know Homo sapiens or Homo sapiens sapiens, and uh, they go back about thirty million years as feathered dinosaurs. Essentially, uh, they've been with us. They were domesticated around the same time as the uh, as dogs were. Uh, one of the oldest human friends. They, uh, like I said, they 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 prefer rocky ledges. Um, and uh, they probably hung out in the openings of our caves and maybe our early farm steads in Mesopotamia with the mud walls. Maybe they would perch in there somewhere. And uh, wherever there were humans, uh, there's always pigeons. As we domesticated cereals uh, and grains, they hung out more. Essentially, wherever you find a human, you'll find a, a pigeon loafing nearby looking for uh, looking for handouts, but not that different than my dog, Ginger. She likes handouts, too. <laughs> well, your book uh, took you into the several different demimons of pigeon fanciers and people who use pigeons for uh, purposes both sacred and profane. Uh, and But uh, one, of, one of the reasons we're here talking today about pigeons was a recent set of reports about the world of pigeon racing. Now, I had no idea that the, pigeon, the world of pigeon racing was so infested with potential criminality, although you do actually point out in your book that uh, certain members of the mafia have been fond of pigeon racing for a long time, and that there's something about pigeon racing that implicitly, I suppose, invites paramutual wagering. Uh, but now comes the report that in Belgium, which for, which for some reason or other, which you will no doubt be able to explain, Belgium, which is just a hotbed of pigeons and pigeon racing, uh, there are now reports of pigeon doping, that the pigeons have been given uh, anti-inflammatory drugs. One pigeon <laughs> tested positive for cocaine. Um, first of all, I, I just I, I don't think anything about pigeons surprises you anymore, Andrew Blackman. But did, did this surprise you? Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not really. Uh, well, cocaine sounds stupid because it's only in your system for about thirty minutes, and those races tend to be for you know uh, three to six or eight hours long. Um, so nothing like getting a quick start and then stalling out. <laughs> uh, look, wherever you find money, you're going to find corruption. You know, right now I'm, I'm in NPR's New York City studios, you know, at the tip of southern tip of Manhattan's Wall Street. Um, wherever you find money, you're going to find corruption. You're going to, just like you did with the, the World Series that was thrown with the White Sox um, in the old days. Uh, so doping of birds, sure. They dope they dope horses, Um and uh, they, they dope pigeons. There's a lot of money in it. I mean, at this point, pigeon racing typically, I mean, there's a lot of good people in pigeon racing. Mm. And it really is one of the oldest sports out there. The Queen of England's family is very fond of it. Um, it's one of the great old hobbies because it's an extremely time-consuming sport. You really have to spend time. I mean, it's, it's animal domestication. It's um, in husbandry. You're, you're dealing with, uh, you know, training your pigeons, raising them, feeding them. And as one of the characters in my book, Orlando call uh, Orlando says, in it is uh, nothing feels better than walking into your your racing club, knowing that your bird won because like you fed it right, you raised it right, you trained it right, and you did everything right, and it won. It came back, and it, and it was the winner. Unfortunately, it's turned into uh, a sport like a lot of sports where um, you know there's there's now. Uh, Basically, pigeon studs. If you want to stud your pigeon uh, with with one of these ones in Belgium, usually at these uh, stud farms, you could pay up to a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and it's a different kind of sport. I mean, at this point, they're they're racing uh, all these birds, usually raised by somebody else. Like in South Africa, they're all raised together. You just send them a squab, a baby, and uh, and then they just throw them up in the air at the same time. See which one comes back. 
The um, yeah, I read about a, a pigeon named Usain Bolt who was sold for what they believe is about four hundred thousand um, dollars. But that how can there be that much money? How does anybody make the money in pigeon racing? Are there gigantic purses in pigeon? I mean, how can they be it's worth a, side a lot of bets. money? Yeah, it's side a side bet. bets. Yeah. yeah, I mean the purses can be big. Um, like the uh, you know, you know some of these races are now global. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's one in South Africa um, that uh, you know it's a huge purse, and people are shipping their baby pigeons um, before they're imprinted on even where they're from. Sometimes I guess they'll ship eggs. Um, and uh, they're trained by somebody else. And really, it's just a genetics game at that point. And, and there's a lot of side betting. But, I mean, the people who are generally doing this racing at this point, like the real traditional racing, are usually immigrants to the U.S. I mean, that's how I got interested in the whole story of pigeons. People are just doing it in the rooftops. If you look up, you'll see people, uh, you'll see people in pigeons. Well, let's actually meet some of those people right now. Our own Patrick Scahill, a while back, uh, did report on pigeon fanciers, on pigeon racers. So let's play a little uh, three-minute piece we call Patrick's Pigeons. So what do you need to get into pigeon racing? Well, first, you have to have a lot of pigeons. In Bill Desmaris' case, 300 in his backyard. Then you tag the birds, load them onto a truck, and ship them hundreds of miles away, where they get released all at once. The bird that flies home fastest wins. We call it racing, they call it flying home. In a typical race, birds fly anywhere from 200 to 600 miles. Nobody knows how pigeons navigate. Most scientists think the birds pick up on many cues, landmarks, smells, and magnetic sensitivity. Desmaris thinks it's something internal, like the radar in a submarine. Beep. Beep. It's like, there must be something that tells them, okay, beep, beep, through take around, beep, and they go home. Now, racing pigeons aren't like the pigeons you see in the park. They're stronger, bred for their endurance and brains. See, I mean, see, look at that right there. That's one of my best ones right there. See it? Mm-hmm. See, looking around, very intelligent, seeing what's going on. Strong, big chest, big wings, you know? Yeah. Like thoroughbreds of the sky, like racehorses of the sky, you know? See him crowing and strutting? He's a cock. He's crowing at that hen. He's putting a show on I'm the boss. I'm the big guy, you know? I'm in charge. I'm in charge. These tough birds are also built for speed. With a favorable wind or hawk on their tail, racing pigeons can fly as fast as 90 miles per hour. Today, Bill is waiting for his birds to return home from Verona, New York. The flock is circling a three-story loft he built behind his house. Come on, come on. Pigeon racers come from all walks of life, lawyers, doctors, and ex-marines like Bill. But they all have one thing in common. They're all characters. Every one of them is a pigeon flyer is a character. Just by the nature of what he does, flying pigeons. How many people fly pigeons? Oh, look at this guy. Harold, how about shot and beer? How about shot and beer? You never drink water, you get sick. Tony Biedersky is one of those characters. He used to play soccer in Poland, but for 33 years, he's raced pigeons in America. I'm with him at a pigeon club in Wallingford. His house is right next door. So did you build the coop yourself? Yep. Yeah. How long did it take to build? The coop was building uh, two, three months before the house. What did your wife think of that? Oh, she don't complain because she know I like it. They know the pigeons is my life. Tony sometimes bets on races, but other pigeon flyers like Wayne and Tina Spakowski say the sport is about other things, like caring for your birds. Pigeon racing isn't without risk. Hawks, power lines, and surprise weather can all keep the birds from coming home. So the Spakowskis are careful not to get too attached. Once you name them, it seems something happens to them. Yeah, we had <laughs> always had one that would always chase my feet. So we called her feet for the longest time. And, of course, you know, one race and she never came home. <laughs> oh, geez, <no. laughs> feet! We lost feet. 
Today, the Spakowski's pigeons are getting loaded onto a truck bound for Toledo. Ralph Dupree is their driver. He's driven pigeons for nearly a decade. Dupree will drive all night, releasing dozens of birds the following morning. He says he'll find a nice spot, a place with good visibility and no power lines, and then it's just a matter of getting out of the way. Sometimes you get crapped out. And for the Spakowskis, well, the race results weren't great either. But with competition nearly every weekend, they'll have plenty of opportunities. And when winter comes, they'll begin mating their best birds, continuing on the never-ending quest to breed the perfect super pigeon for next season. All right, that's uh, our own Patrick Scahill. Andrew Blackman. I think you heard some of the immigrants that you were talking about uh, in that piece. And I'm sure Absolutely. in the sensibilities reflected in that piece, a lot of sensibilities that you recognize from the time that you spend among pigeon racers. Yeah, I mean, they're good folk. I mean, there's, I mean, it, it really is one of the last great hobbies, um, you know, it, and it's dying. It's dying with that generation of immigrants, whether they're Polish or Jamaican, Belgian or, or, or Dominican or Puerto Rican uh, or Peruvian. They're from all over the world or, or the Middle East. I mean, pigeons are basically beloved everywhere but the United States, from what I could tell. Um, yeah, and, and it's it's hours and hours and hours and hours a week. And you, you have a lot of what I call pigeon racing widows or racing widows, you know, the poor suffering wives who get half the attention that, 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 the, uh, that the staple pigeons gets. And, you know, these guys call their birds thoroughbreds. And they, in a lot of ways they are. These birds will, will fly from a place they've never been before. I mean, they're trucked out. And you know, so let's say it's 500 miles away, which is which is pretty typical. They'll fly home at 60 miles an hour, not stopping for food, water, rest, or anything, and uh, they'll home in um, on on their on their loft, uh, basically like a laser guided missile at 60 miles an hour from a place they've never been before. I mean, compare that to a racehorse, which really just runs what a uh, few furloughs, which is basically a quarter a mile and a quarter, maybe just a few, you know, one and a quarter times around the track. And so they can't get lost. And, and even a great, great, great racehorse is really only going about 35 miles an hour and only for about a mile or so. Just to, you know, uh, uh, they are gentle folk, these pigeon uh, fancers. You can sort of tell that. On the other hand, um, they have come under attack from people for the ethical, ethical treatment of animals. And the argument being that a lot of the pigeons don't make it back. Uh, in fact, you know, maybe even half the pigeons don't make it back for one reason or another. Some of them maybe just don't come back. Some of them get hit by hawks or power lines. Uh, I think PETA has also claimed that uh, slow pigeons are just offed by some pigeon breeders. Now, what's your answer? If somebody from PETA were here right now, what would you say to them? I'd say uh, I'd say they're partly right. I'd say uh, pigeon racers love uh, really enjoy their birds, and they love racing. And the two mix in a certain kind of way. I mean, if you have a slow pigeon or a pigeon that doesn't come back, you really don't want to come back. You don't want the pigeon back. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes you'll see a bird maybe in the city with a little racing band around it. You know, it's like a little thing around his ankle. Mm. The trick is really not to uh, not to try to research it, but um, just kind of let it loaf in the city. Because mm. uh, a lot of times they they really don't want the bird the bird that can't come home on its own, and it, and it, you know, and and you're breeding racers. It's like the boxer that can't get up chronically and it gets knocked out in the first round. You, you really don't want it back. So it, it's a mix. They love their birds. They love the sport. Could be like a Jonathan Martin type pigeon too. It just decided it didn't like the competition. Maybe there was another pigeon bullying it or something. Decided to drop out of competition. Speaking of the band, one of the more chilling stories that I've read recently is that uh, once again in Belgium uh, they've had a problem with pigeons being stolen. Uh, and what they what the smugglers do is they don't bother to smuggle the the pigeons. What they, they, they tend to be apparently Chinese organized crime groups, and they just cut the leg off that has the band on it. And then they just take the the band home and put it on the leg of an inferior 
carrier pigeon and then claim some great pedigree for it so it's worth a lot more money, which is a It's amazing thing. what we humans will do. I know. Pigeons would never do that to, to humans, I don't think, anyway, although uh, who knows if they were given a chance. I can guarantee you the greediest you'll get in a pigeon is one that tries to peck one piece of seed too much. Well, you know, speaking of pecking one piece of seed, and this will be the last thing before we go into our, our next segment, but it, it sort of can set up kind of some of the military stuff pretty well. One of the many people who's been there, – there are two people that we should talk about. One of them is Mike Tyson. I hope we can get to him. But one of the sure. other people very interested in uh, – and by the way, if we don't get to it, you should read Andrew's book at least for the chapter where he's running around trying to have an audience with Mike Tyson. Spoiler, he doesn't – get to, but the, the, what he goes through in the process is uh, very amusing and lots of fun. But um, but B.F. Skinner was kind of, if not obsessed with pigeons, B.F. Skinner, uh, the great uh, psychologist of the 20th century, was somebody who believed that some of the innate capacities of pigeons um, made them very worthy of study for the kinds of uh, theories that he was interested in, especially operant conditioning. Actually, let's just play a little clip. I don't know if this is B.F. Skinner's voice or not. I couldn't figure that out. But this is an old black and white uh, clip that shows two pigeons batting a ping pong ball back and forth across a flat surface. The two uh, pigeons are at either end of a small ping pong table. One pigeon uh, pecks the ball as it comes toward him and knocks it toward the other pigeon. Other pigeon pecks the ball back across the table. If it goes past one pigeon, the other pigeon can eat, and if it goes the other way, the other pigeon eats. So that there is a real, it's a real game. The uh, pigeon uh, is reinforced for a cross-court shot if that is what gets the ball past his opponent. You know, we'll talk about Project Pigeon in the next segment with Yoni. But, um, but Andrew Blackman, one of the things you watch some of these things from the Skinner Institute, and one of the things you cannot help but conclude is that pigeons are actually pretty smart. Yeah, pigeons are. Uh, I mean, they have a lot of innate abilities. I mean, they have. Uh, they're able to see infrared. They're able to. Ha- they have ultrasonic hearing. Um, they can. They're very good at, at finding something that doesn't belong as a pattern. Like if, uh, if I remember seeing an old video of uh, basically. Uh, Pharmaceuticals going down a, a little, a little ramp on, on a, a conveyor belt, and they can pick out the one that that has a defect in it, like the one pill or something like that. Um, they're uh, they're very bright. I mean, uh, and and uh, I, I guess humans. I mean, their homing instinct's amazing, and we've been doing that since Egyptians were using them to send them up and down the Nile to uh, to send uh, uh, water readings up and down in ancient ancient. Uh, Ancient Egypt, they were used to, to to bring word of the Olympics back home. Yet uh, Julius Reuters started his entire uh, news empire, Reuters News Gathering I w- Agency. I was amazed by that in your book. That was one of my favorite things in your book is that, that uh, the guy who started Reuters, who actually had a different name and changed it to Reuters, started out with pigeons actually traversing a certain area, bringing messages back and forth. One of the many, many amazing little subplots or little items. It, in, it was in, a little gap in the uh, telegraph uh, right. system, basically from uh, Berlin to uh, to London. Uh, there was a little gap in, around Aachen because there's uh, some very hilly terrain there. And he was able to fill that gap with pigeons delivering news. All right. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back with more about pigeons in the military. So one Betsy Kaplan, two Betsy Kaplan, three Betsy Kaplan. If I were a pigeon, I would never be late for work. I'd fly over the traffic. It's a pigeon perk. And be so glad I'm not you. 
You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show. It originally aired November 13th, 2013, here on Connecticut Public Radio. We're back with our show about pigeons. Our anchor guest today is Andrew Blechman. He's an award-winning journalist, managing editor of Orion Magazine, and author of Pigeons, the fascinating saga of the world's most revered and reviled bird. Now also joining us is uh, Yoni Applebaum, uh, and he'll join us when I put him up. There we go. Uh, Yoni Applebaum is a social, uh, social and cultural historian and a doctoral candidate at Brandeis University. He's not getting his doctorate, we want to emphasize, in the history of pigeons or even in uh, historically fascinating details about pigeons. But he has become interested in uh, pigeons, especially around the time of World War I, uh, and as I said before, fascinated especially about a certain triadic configuration between the military, pigeons, and the Boston Red Sox. So uh, he's going to begin by telling us a little bit about that. Andrew and I will be chiming in with uh, even more pigeon military history, a great deal of which there is in his book. But Yoni Applebaum, uh, welcome to our show. And uh, tell us about pigeons in World War I. This was, once again, you know, we were just talking about Reuters, but uh, pigeons are often were often used to sort of patch up some communication network which needed to go at a faster speed and that's one of the things that, that they were used for in World War One. Tell us about it. Well thanks for having me on. That's exactly right. Uh, and I stumbled across this because I'm not only a cultural historian, I'm also a baseball fan. And like I suspect a lot of your listeners, I was tuned in to the World Series uh, as it came back to Fenway Park and they mentioned that um during Game 6 of the World Series, the last time it got that far at Fenway in 1918, uh, there were troops on hand dispatching pigeons at the end of every inning and carrying the score and the details uh, 37 miles away to Camp Devens, uh, where there were some 50,000 troops training to go off to France. And that just seemed fantastically strange. They had telephones, they had telegraphs, they had uh, what they called wireless radio, and... Um, it seemed very odd to be strapping the score to, to pigeon legs and, and uh, sending it off uh, 37 miles when you could pick up the phone and, and ask uh, what was going on at Fenway. And uh, what cultural historians tend to do is find odd little threads like that and start tugging to see what comes out. And uh, I uh, tugged and, and found this, this fascinating story of, of what the military was actually up to at Fenway in, in 1918. Well, one of the things they were trying to do, I think, is build up pride around the, this whole idea and maybe also instill a lot of people all at once with the importance of pigeons. Because part of the problem in the training period with the pigeons was that because people have sometimes shot at pigeons to amuse themselves or maybe even to eat them, that was happening, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So you've got this very odd juxtaposition. You, you have a small group of pigeon fanciers within the United States who are actively raising them um, as a hobby, uh, as uh, Andrews described. And then you have uh, most Americans relating to pigeons as either a, an a, um, item on the menu of a fancy dinner party as squabs or uh, as uh, a target for hunting um, or perhaps as, as a nuisance. The groundskeepers at Fenway were known to scatter breadcrumbs and wait for the pigeons to swoop down and, and then blast away with their with their shotguns. So there's this this dramatic shift in attitudes that takes place at the, the beginning of the war. General Pershing, uh, the commander, gets over to France and looks around, and one of the first telegrams he sends back is a demand for the army to start finding itself some some pigeons. Uh, it turns out that pigeons can plug the gap in, in battlefield communication uh, in a way that nothing else in that war can. There's an expectation of instantaneous communications because we do have technologies by then like uh, telephony and telegraphy, uh, but 
it's really hard to keep those technologies up and running on a battlefield with uh, fast-moving units, which move faster than you can string wire uh, and to send secure uh, messages back. So the Army starts recruiting these tremendous uh, numbers of, of pigeoneers and pigeons. Uh, they enlist uh, nearly a, a thousand pigeon handlers. Um, we send some 15,000 pigeons over to France. We, we have 10,000 of them stationed domestically. We're training them. We keep on uh, taking them out by, by airplane on foot and releasing them so they can fly back to the post and, and learn how to do that. Uh, and uh, farmers are taking pot shots at them. The, the Army resorts to... to going to the newspapers and announcing that um, these pigeons are soldiers training the fight for their country. And uh, they go so far as to say that any person who tries to kill any pigeon whatsoever may be stabbing the boys in the trenches in the back. So there's this real rousing appeal to patriotism that centers on, on the pigeons. Uh, it's both practical to keep them alive long enough to learn their duty, uh, but also as a way of, of making Americans feel tied to the war effort. And that's what they're doing at Fenway Park, ultimately. It is the 1918 equivalent of a flyover. Uh, the World Series opened at Fenway with uh, four F-18 Marine fighter jets uh, buzzing low over Fenway. And in 1918, uh, buzzing low over Fenway were, were pigeons. <laughs> and Andrew Blackman, this is a familiar story to you, and, and the use of pigeons went on into World War II. Uh, there were um, pigeons being used once again pretty, pretty much the same way, right? Sometimes to carry even encrypted messages? Yeah, I mean, pigeons are... I mean, I, my favorite story is always sharing me from World War One with the Lost Battalion. Um, and uh, they were behind en- enemy lines and, and uh, the, the uh, our own military was was sending shells on and firing on them, and they had a few pigeons with them. And uh, the soldiers, um, as they were hunkered down, and they sent one up, shot down by the Germans by rifle, sent another one up with, with a with a rescue message, shot down, and the third one, Cherami, was uh, was uh, was actually shot, but kept going and uh, made it back to the American base, and they. M- Immediately stopped uh, uh, firing, but uh, the poor Cherami was basically blown to bits. She still she still raced back to deliver her message uh, with with one leg dangling. She couldn't she couldn't even really land. The, um, but yeah, I mean they're they're still being used now. Uh, they're they're being used. Look, if you don't want the NSA eavesdropping on you, <laughs> um, well then put your iPhone down and put down your high technology way of sending uh, messages. And if you're a uh, you know if you're an insurgent in Iraq or Afghanistan, send it by pigeon post. Um, the, Still being used. Yeah, and, and actually, uh, and this I think uh, occurred after your book was written, but uh, in, in England a couple of years ago, they uh, found a pigeon in a chimney, and the pigeon appeared to have died during World War II. On its leg was an encrypted handwritten message from World War II, which the codebreakers today were, were unable to crack, uh, but uh, they believe that it was actually flying home uh, to uh, from British units in France around the time of D- the D-Day landing in 1944. So They were uh, dropped from airplanes with parachutes they were uh, they were they were uh, let out of uh, out of some rains that would quickly surface pigeons uh, in fact we dropped a ton of pigeons with uh, the French resistance all they had to do was uh, w- with a piece of paper and a pencil um, and we'd parachute them in and then uh, hopefully they wouldn't be eaten by the French resistance but if they had a message to give back they would just put it in the capsule let let the pigeon go it would fly back across the channel you know um, Yoni uh, Andrew's book is uh, subtitled the, the most revered and reviled bird and that dichotomy or that odd paradox kind of runs through 
all pigeon stories. For every story of them doing something really terrific, then there's a story about people really hating them or, or doing, doing something horrible to them. And, and ironically, uh, especially ironically given the, the players, I'm also a big Red Sox fan too. Uh, and so Ted Williams, who was probably the most militarily heroic Red Sox player, actually left baseball twice to, to fight in two different wars uh, for the United States. On the other hand, never got the memo about how great pigeons are. I'll, I'll let you pick up that story. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great tale because uh, there's Ted Williams who is flying for his country uh, in, in uh, World War II and again in Korea, but uh, doesn't have a whole lot of respect for these pigeons who are also flying for the same country. He uh, was one of a number of Red Sox players through the years uh, who used to enjoy taking uh, target practice at the pigeons out in the bleachers. Uh, he'd go out there and, and uh, blaze away at them with his, his shotgun. Uh, on at least one occasion, he was joined by the team's owner, Tom Yawkey, uh, the street in front of Fenway is named for now. Uh, Lefty Grove, uh, who was with the club in, in the 30s and the early 40s, uh, was also notorious for doing this. Um, and uh, it got to the point where the uh, uh, one of the feuding sports writers, and, and Williams had notoriously bad relationships with the media, uh, dropped a dime on him to the uh, Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty for Animals, who, who went after him uh, for doing this. And, and he made a public apology, but privately remained... Unrepentant. So you've got, uh, in 1918, pigeons flying over Fenway Park to rally support for the war. Uh, and uh, as soon as that wartime service is over, Jeremy is, is stuffed and put on display in the Smithsonian as a tribute um, alongside the, the, the French medal that, that uh, he won in the war. And, and uh, Williams goes back to, to blazing away at, at the pigeons of, of Fenway Park as nuisances, pests worthy of extermination. Well, Yoni Applebaum from Brandeis University, great to talk to you about all this. Andrew Blackman, as we sort of wind up this segment here, since we're talking about that and about Ted Williams, I mean, one of the other things that you did, speaking of demimonds into which you descended, you did briefly descend into the world of of target shooters who continue to shoot at live pigeons. If you go to a skeet shooting range these days, you wind up shooting at what is sometimes called a clay pigeon. You wind up shooting at sort of an inanimate target flung into the air for you. Uh, but there, there's a small group of skeet shooters who still shoot, or at least at the time of the writing of your book, still shot at thousands of pigeons released over the course of maybe even just a single day of shooting, right? Yeah, actually, I was the first and probably the only journalist ever, I guess, I don't know, infiltrate uh, such a thing. Um, animal rights groups and other journalists have, have tried for a long time. And uh, I infiltrated by agreeing to be part of the shoot. And um, luckily, I'm a horrible shot. I knew it. You know, um, I'm not about to uh, hit a skeet live or otherwise. It's a horrible uh, situation. Um, it, it's slowly dying off, but it still exists. Uh, basically, you have people who poach uh, pigeons from the streets in New York City, usually early in the morning just as the sun's rising, which is when pigeons wake up. They'll put some uh, feed out, and then they'll just net them, and then they'll throw them in vans. And then they'll race them out to uh, central Pennsylvania or uh, you know just rural Pennsylvania. And that's where they're most popular, these shoots. And uh, there's a whole... There's a whole schedule of shoots, and they take the pigeons. They're usually uh, starving and, and dying of thirst, very, very disoriented. They're literally thrown into uh, catapults, which then catapult them into the air, uh, just stunned. And then they're used basically for uh, as pure on target practice with, uh, with shotguns. And the goal is to shoot the bird and have it land within a certain circle. 
So, uh, you know, the closer to the bullseye, almost as if it were darts. And the birds are just left there to die um, while the shoots go on. And it's just a bloody, bloody uh, situation with uh, dead and dying bloody birds everywhere. Some of them will will be able to fly away just a little bit. Then you'll see them upside down in the parking lot. And then they uh, pay uh, young boys to go around and uh, collect them, throw them into trash bags, sometimes twist their necks. Sometimes they're just thrown in there and then just thrown in a trash can. It's a depressing part of the book. Hey, we've got a call from uh, Kate in New Milford. I know this phrase is mentioned in Andrew Blackman's book. I don't know that he necessarily knows the uh, etymological answer to this, but uh, let's give it a shot. Here's uh, Kate in New Milford. Go ahead. I was just curious where the phrase stool pigeon came from. All right. I know that you mentioned the phrase stool pigeon uh, in an early part of your book, Andrew, but I'm not sure that – does anybody know where that comes from? You know, I can't remember. I had a professor who always told me the best kind of professor was the one who said, I don't know, mm-hmm. when there was an qu- answer to a question. I just can't quite remember, except for pigeons were thought to be uh, to be somewhat stupid over time. And stool pigeon is just someone who's not real bright and will, will give, you know, will squeal. Right. A stool pigeon, yeah, somebody who will, who will squeal. I would be entertaining to make up an explanation, which I'm quite capable of doing on the spot, but maybe we'll, we'll hold off on that. Instead, i got time later today. All right. Instead, <laughs> instead yes, I, my article in Orion Magazine will go up later today explaining the origins of that phrase. All right. So um, we're going to take a quick break. It's our All Pigeon Show. I have written down a notice, take it to my darling and show it to her, please. Carry a pigeon along, song is tied to your foot. Carry a pigeon, fly over Connecticut with my love song. This is the start of it, a love song. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show. It originally aired November 13th, 2013, here on Connecticut Public Radio. Pull! 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 Is anybody actually releasing the pigeons when I say pull? That's the whole point. Nobody explained that to you? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me with help from our intern, Tess Aronson. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mike Tyson. For photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff eating a pigeon pot pie, check our website, wnpr.org. And now, back to Colin. All right, we are talking about pigeons. We did have a question about stool pigeon. Actually, Neely Bruce's name is up on the board here as a caller. When I, Neely, when I saw that you were calling, I assumed that you were calling in to talk about Virgil Thompson's Four Saints in Three Acts, which we are going to talk about in this segment. But it turns out that's not why you're calling up. You're calling up about the phrase stool pigeon. Yes, that's exactly right. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. Excellent. I'm pulling over. I'm actually driving, but now I'm legally parked. All right. Uh, this is the origin of the term stool pigeon. It has to do with passenger pigeons, which I'm sure you have already discussed uh, or are about to. And passenger pigeons were hunted in enormous numbers. They were hunted to extinction. But one of the standard techniques was to put a, a decoy. Passenger pigeons liked to go down on the ground where there were other passenger pigeons. So they would put a decoy down, and it was a pigeon on a sort of stool-like thing that had three legs but could be completely jerked out of the way so it didn't get damaged. Uh, and the, the pigeons would come down in enormous numbers, and they would be shot on the spot and then sent off to restaurants or wherever to be eaten. 
Well, so it's a pigeon is a pigeon on a stool that is used to attract other pigeons to where they will be killed. So a duplicitous pigeon. Well, it certainly makes sense, and I'm sure it would pass the fact-checkers at Orion Magazine. So Neely Bruce, composer, uh, conductor, I really I thought you wanted to talk about Virgil Thompson. It just goes to show you should never assume anything. Uh, and in just a second, we'll be talking to Wanda Korn from Stanford University about Gertrude Stein and pigeons and that opera. Uh, but before we do, Andrew Blackman, do, you know, do we know anything more about Picasso and pigeons? I mean, we know that he named his daughter Paloma, which is, means pigeon. Is there any other thing that we know, like why he would have done that well he loved them uh is the short answer uh he loved them enough to name his daughter after them and um if you know the bird uh the girl with a dove is one of his most beautiful pictures ever one of the most beautiful paintings and um he uh you know it's interesting it's really only in the united states from what i can tell that where pigeons are 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 so debated except for maybe trafalgar square in london um generally all through human history they've been worshipped as fertility goddesses they've been seen as a gentle friend who will visit you every day you know at the same time if that's when you feed them they're seen as uh you know all through the middle east and baghdad pigeon racing and 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 the keeping of pigeons is a as a as a big sport they're beloved uh ancient rome was filled with pigeons and uh, so I mean, it's just kind of unusual that, that that's not the case here. Well, I, just as we are, we're uh, heading towards the home stretch here, we are going to talk about p- pigeons in the arts. And I wanted to set that up by saying in 1995, three w- researchers, Watanabe, Sakamoto, and Wakita, um, described an experiment in which they showed pigeons um, paintings by Picasso and Monet uh, and trained them so that, uh, that they would obtain food when they pecked at a Picasso or pecked for a, a Picasso <laughs> rather than a Monet. And, and that the pigeons then were able to distinguish between a Picasso and a Monet when it was a painting that they had never seen before, so that they eventually came to understand what Picasso's style was, as opposed to Monet's, at least uh, for their purposes. And then a later uh, paper, one of the same researchers showed that if pigeons and human college students undergo the same training, their performance in telling a Van Gogh from a Chagall is pretty much the same. So pigeons and the arts, uh, it's uh, a natural pairing, apparently. But, you know, the place that they really surface the most, at least for me, one of the most memorable Gertrude Stein lines. In fact, if you know almost nothing else about Gertrude Stein, except for a rose is a rose is a rose, and there is no there there, maybe the third thing you know is pigeons on the grass, alas, especially if you know James Thurber's spirited Contra Stein response to this. But um, joining us right now to explain, uh, and, and part of the exciting thing about pigeons on the grass, alas, is that it's intimately tied into the history of Hartford, Connecticut, where Virgil Thompson and Gertrude Stein's opera, Four Saints in Three Acts, premiered under the directorship of John Hasman. So Wanda Korn, uh, Robert and Ruth Halpern Professor Emerita, uh, Department of Art and Art History at Stanford University, joins us. Um, maybe just to sort of set things up, Wanda Korn, we'll just play a little bit of the, the it's a little bit hard to hear, I think, but the, the musical intonation of Pigeons on the Grass, Alas. Pigeons on the Grass, Alas. Pigeons on the Grass, Alas. Short, long grass, Oh, 
All right, uh, that's from Four Saints and Three Acts. So, Wanda Corn, welcome to the show. And to the extent that anybody can ever figure out what's going on with Gertrude Stein, what's going on with Gertrude Stein and pigeons on the grass? Well, it's a great question, and I can't give you a, 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 a definitive answer because that's always impossible with Stein. Yeah, I would be so disappointed if you could. <laughs> but what we should say is that this opera uh, that we just heard one little aria from, or piece of an aria, is called Four Saints in Three Acts, and it is about uh, saints in Spain, 16th, 17th century, much older saints. Uh, and one of them, St. Ignatius, who is singing that aria, um, it's been said by an interpreter, is actually having a vision uh, as he sings about birds. And they're, of course, pigeons, which at the time would have been a very kind of ordinary bird for a saint to be thinking of. You'd think a saint would think of a white dove, which in Christianity has had a long history as a, as a bird about purity, about God, about peace. But instead, he has his vision through pigeons. And that makes some sense, if that indeed was what was on Stein's mind, because she had a sense of humor. Um, she, I think, always wanted to talk in very natural vernacular language. She always spoke in the first tense, that is when she wrote. And, of course, she liked repetitions. Uh, and somehow pigeons on the grass has just enough of a little alliteration and, and um, harmony to it, pigeons on the grass, alas, that I think she came to like that phrase so much. It worked much better than dove, which would just be a dud of a word compared with what she wants to do with it. So it's right in the middle of the of the um, opera, and Thompson, Virgil Thompson, who wrote the music for Stein's libretto, um, made it into a kind of, if you will, a kind of hit tune of this particular um, opera. And to the extent that any hits emerged from Four Saints in Three Acts. Yeah. So, so James, James Thurber wrote a mock contra Stein essay about this particular line, about this particular aria, in which he objected lengthily to the whole trope. Uh, at one point he said, you could dress up a pigeon in a tiny suit of evening clothes and put a tiny silk hat on his head and a tiny gold-headed cane under his wing and send him walking into my room at night. It would make no impression on me. I would not <laughs> shout, good God almighty, the birds are in charge. Uh, so he he was objecting to the idea that pigeons can inspire any uh, profound emotions in anybody. I don't think he was terribly serious about that. But, but um, Wanda, as we look at a poem like this, is it, is it like James Joyce, too, that at a certain point she's just so much in, the love, uh, in love with a certain cadence of language and the flowing together of sounds that, that parsing it for actual sense is kind of beside the point? Yes, I think that's, that's very well, well said. Uh, it's the musicality of the language. It is making you hear language because you listen more intensely when it's not making sense to you. Uh, and so then you might be able to get into the musicality in which the language is both spoken and, and in this case, um, uh, sung. Unlike Joyce, though, who very often had uh, considerable um, ideas about references that his words, his chosen words would call up. And so you can have a compendium of lines from Joyce that will tell you about the intellectual stimulus behind it or the symbolism behind it or where the phrase might have been used by somebody else and is being um, here appropriated by Joyce. You don't find that kind of allusions to 
to other um, bigger intellectual traditions uh, in Stein. So it's the sounds that are thrilling her. Plus, she really loved ordinary language, and I think Joyce loved extraordinary language, if I can put it that way. The two of them were not much uh, in, in the way of friends. They both were in Paris, but I think probably for each of them, uh, they did not see an alliance with the other. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and if anything, um, they, they sort of kept themselves apart and had different audiences for their work and different friendship circles. The, the parts of the aria sound like an undiscovered uh, fourth verse of I Am the Walrus. If a magpie <laughs> in the sky cannot cry, if the pigeon on the grass, alas, can alas, and to pass the pigeon on the grass, alas, and the magpie in the sky. It goes on and on like this. Thank you so much. Wanda Corn. Thanks to Andrew Blackman, also author of Pigeons. If you were, if your taste was wetted by this, by Pigeons, the fascinating saga of the world's most revered and reviled bird. Also, thanks to Yoni Applebaum. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan, who's been nursing these pigeons along for days and days as its producer. And we'll be back tomorrow. I'm Kyone Wolf. I missed a call from my pigeon manager. You have one voicemail message. Is he threatening me? (gasps) Message marked for deletion. Does anybody have Saul Goodman's number?